As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Say Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with both of my co-hosts this week, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hoo! Oh wow. What's that that firing did not did nothing. I, what kind I, of show I, are you guys putting on here? I feel <laughs> I feel uncomfortable. Uh, I need well, to, I'm going to raise this with HR. That was its uh that was its intended uh uh uh, purpose. So there we are. We're here. Um, we're here. We're still keeping the Pacino. Uh, it, it was it was erroneously reported that I was let go. I was merely placed on administrative leave, and I'm Look, back now. It was a fast moving story. Yeah. We we will keep everyone updated. Uh, um, but in all seriousness, uh, we are still doing the Pro Se Movie Club every week. I would indeed. If, if you are not listening, uh, I would suggest you do so. Uh, we did Loving last week, which was a great chat. Uh, we are doing... What are we doing next week? Liar, Liar, Bill. Liar, Liar. That's it's right. It's essentially the opposite of the movie Loving. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yes. It's, it, was, um, it was good, and it was a great chat, so uh, yes. everyone should listen. But we do have some, some news we're going to get to in today's show. We're joined by our senior securities reporter, Dean Seal, a little later on for a talk about something I really didn't know much about. Um, it's this practice of shadow trading, which is in, on the like periphery of insider trading. And he explains why the SEC is going after that now. Yeah, it was a good talk with Dean. Um, it, it sort of is a novel case brought by the SEC that exists kind of in the in the in the on the margins of what we generally understand to be insider trading laws, super interesting chat. Um, but we do have some news to get to, and I think Bill. Uh, I mean, everybody's been talking about this case. I thought that you wrote. Uh, I'm not just saying this because you're my colleague and allegedly my friend. Uh, I thought that you wrote uh, the really definitive analysis of this story. So I think we should just get into it here. Thanks, man. That's really nice. Uh, Alex is alluding to uh, the lawsuit that was filed this week uh, by the man who had been featured as a a baby on the cover (laughs) of a 30-year-old Nirvana album. Yes. Um, He was naked on the cover of that album, and he brought a lawsuit this week alleging that the photo on the cover of the album amounted to child pornography. Um, I... As Alex said, ha- have sort of been all over this story. Uh, it's not necessarily a great topic to dig into, to be googling about. Um, but but definitely ask me <laughs> ask me anything that's on your mind. He's filed well, two stories in a day, folks, on the topic of child pornography and Nirvana. Uh, he is an expert now. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I definitely want to get into this one. As a personal note, I had this album growing up, I mean, and yeah. I very much remember flipping that cover like inside out when I had it in my bedroom so that my parents wouldn't get mad about this yeah. picture. So uh, it's, a, it's an interesting one. But Bill, maybe just ex- explain it for anybody who hasn't seen that cover in a long time. Well, I was going to say you were one of 30 million Americans that bought that <laughs> yeah, album. Yeah, we all had it. Yeah. Um, yes. 
Yeah, I mean, it was uh, Nirvana's sophomore album. It came out in 1991, uh, Nevermind. Um, it sort of goes without saying for anybody who li- who's listening who's a rock fan, but I mean, it's one of the most famous albums of all time. The cover art is equally famous. It's this. It's a picture of a nude um, infant swimming in a pool, seemingly chasing after a dollar bill on a fish hook. Um, the image was pretty shocking at the time. I mean, it still is. The baby's genitalia is very clear in the photo. Um, the the label tried to get the band to censor the image with a tiny sticker. Some records went out that way, but you know the 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 cover is uncensored. Um, and but so it was long considered that it was you know it was an indictment on of capitalism uh, of greed and materialism sort of echoing the band's counterculture ethos but on tuesday spencer eldon who is the now 30 year old man who was featured in the image uh, filed a lawsuit saying that it was something very different he said that it was a form of sexual exploitation and more importantly a violation of federal child pornography laws and we should say just at the outset this is a civil case. It is not a criminal case. Yeah. Um, that statute has both, uh, you know, civil and criminal uh, provisions to it. Um, you just want to be really careful when you're talking about this stuff to make to make sure that, yeah. that you're clear that there have not been any crimes uh, alleged here. Well, can we start with one of my big questions as this was bubbling up in the news? I would assume his parents were part of this photo shoot. He was a baby. Didn't they sign off in this cover? Yeah, so Eldon was four months old when the photos were taken, and this is part of what gets tricky about this case. Um, So there's been sort of mixed messages in the media. Um, According to an interview that Eldon's father gave to NPR back in 2008, um, he was friends with this photographer and agreed to bring Spencer to the shoot and was paid about $200 at the time. Now, the interview makes it seem like it was all very loose and said, why don't you come by? We're doing this shoot. I need some models. Um, You know, we'll dunk your kid in the pool. It'll be fun. It certainly seems like he did not know that the image was going to go on an album cover and and absolutely did not know that he was that it was going to go on one that sold sure. 30 million copies and became this sort of iconic piece of, of popular culture. In the new complaint, that was filed this week. Eldon says that um, neither he nor his parents had ever signed a release for the commercial use of the image. Now, whether or not there was some sort of handshake deal, money was exchanged. Um, we, we don't really know at this point, um, but, but he says certainly that he did not sign off on the use of this nude image that he says constitutes child pornography. The, the the complaint has drawn a lot of eyeballs and you know we we were sort of we even have sort of talked about it in kind of a light uh tone a little bit these are obvi- but, but but these are laws that that protect that protect against a very serious um transgression and i and i think it's very important to talk about exactly what kinds of things they protect and don't protect um and you wrote as I said at the top, a very good piece about sort of drawing the lines about what exactly is covered by child pornography laws. Let's talk about that a little bit. What what exactly is sort of in and outside the bounds of the law here? Yeah, so I spoke to like four or five different experts in this field. And to, you know, to a person, they will tell you this is a very case by case area of the law. And you yeah. have to assess these individual pictures and their context. And um, so it's hard to handicap this kind of thing. But I will walk us through sort of the way the law works in general terms. Okay. Um, 
child pornography laws cover sexual images of minors that that you know that seems obvious um they don't apply to more innocent images like you know just a a a picture of a child nude at at home in the bathtub for instance which Um, makes sense because you wouldn't want you know a a, just a suburban mom to post a a picture of her kid on facebook and have trouble in this way exactly and um so the the statute issue defines child pornography as a a visual depiction of quote sexual conduct involving a minor. Now, we should say it doesn't have to be outright sex that is being portrayed. Um the law bans um what what it defines as quote lascivious exhibition of the genitals. And that's what Eldon's case claims went on here. Not that there was, you know, cuz obviously it didn't involve outright sex, but there was this yeah. lascivious, you know, exhibition of the genitals. So what counts as lascivious here? Um, that's, that's where you get into really tricky territory and courts use this six part test, which, um, you know, I think people's eyes gloss over, but it's important to, to lay Definitely. down sort of what courts are looking at here. So the, the questions are one, whether the focal point is the genitalia two, whether the setting is sexually suggestive three, whether the child is depicted in an unnatural pose or an inappropriate attire, four, the extent to which the child is nude, five, whether the image suggests coyness or or some sort of willingness to engage in sexual activity, and six, whether it's intended or designed to elicit a sexual response in the viewer. That's a lot to sort of take in, but you know, sure, yeah. it's it's it's. I, I I say that I sort of wanted to get it all out there so that people understand it is this very contextual balancing act of a lot of different factors, and um, so both sides here are going to point to aspects of that test. Um, and and Eldon tried to in the complaint that was filed this week. His attorney said that um, the image, uh, you know, it was that the posing of the of the image and the the framing and the design was aimed to quote trigger a visceral sexual response from the viewer. In particular, and this uh, caught eyeballs among some some legal experts out there in the wake of this lawsuit being filed. the The complaint pointed to the superimposing of this dollar bill um, in the image. Mm-hmm. The quote. Cobain chose the image depicting Spencer like a sex worker grabbing for a dollar bill that is positioned dangling from a fish hook in front of his nude body with his penis explicitly displayed. So they they need to show that this image was sexualized and that there was this, you know, this sheen of sexualization that was put over the image and to to make this claim work. So they clearly tailored yeah. the complaint in that way. I should say there are other claims here as well. There's a common law privacy claim. There's a negligence claim. There's a claim under California's state child pornography law. So there's a lot of wrinkles beyond um, uh, just the child p- pornography stuff that we're digging into that we were just digging into. So um, there are a lot of different ways that this lawsuit can go um, and a lot of different ways that these these two sides are going to argue about this. So one other question I had just, you know, thinking back to when I owned this album and I think you set up top. We're at the 30-year mark for when this came out. So how are we in court this far away from when the image originally came to prominence? So the the federal statute in question here has a 10-year time limit um, from when the victim turns 18, meaning Eldon would be past that. He's 30, and that would put him, you know, that would put him a few years past that. But his attorneys, I talked to his attorneys and they said that there are two reasons why that's not an automatic bar on the case. One is that 
Um, that time limit can be delayed based on when the victim discovers the injury. So, you know, mm-hmm. um, anytime you're dealing with with trauma for a child, you want to be really, um, you know, conscious of, uh, you know, people discovering that that this thing happened to them and and the delay there. Um, two is that uh, they say the lawsuit um, is aimed not just at this like discrete moment in the past that would be clearly like past the statute of limitations. Um, but the ongoing distribution of this, because yeah. the image is still being sold, it's still being shared around every time the album comes out or is sold, that that's a new, you know, um, you know, a new act. So, uh, so they say that 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 stuff is is also the target of the lawsuit, which would, um, you know, put it outside or inside that that statute of yes. limitations. But certainly, um, the statute of limitations um, and and you know the long delay here will be one avenue of attack for. Nirvana's uh, defense attorneys. One more point I wanted to bring up about this long delay that that also makes the case tricky. In the years since the photo was taken, Eldon repeatedly seemed to endorse the image. Um, both as a teenager and, more importantly, later as an adult, he posed for photo shoots that recreated the image, um, you know, when there would be the 25th anniversary of, of the release of yeah. this album. And he gave interviews as again, as an adult, where he said that this had been a positive thing for him, whether or not that, you know, that was certainly mentioned in press coverage this week and whether or not it factors into the actual legal arguments. um, It it, it certainly added to the perception this week that this case was unfair or that it was, you know, questionable to bring these claims so many years later about a photo that had been out there and that no one had really ever considered to be child pornography um it raised a lot of questions of should this case have been you know uh, filed more about um you know compensation for the image or should it right. have been brought uh, via a different vehicle and were the child pornography claims meant to be this sort of um you know bombastic way to get press coverage i mean here we are talking about it so right. um uh so very interesting uh, you know, interplay between this actual case and the press coverage and all the different tricky questions about it. Um, I, I, I just, I, I'll get us out on, I, I thought it was interesting. I talked to one child privacy expert who said, look, it's an interesting case, but it's interesting in the big questions it raises beyond just this, the distinct legal claims here, which is there are tons of kids out there who have images that were taken of them when they were children nowadays right. that, um, you know, we live in an internet era where these images will never go away. And what rights do those do do minors have over those images? What constraints are there on parents to allow those to be out there forever? That's obviously beyond the scope of this lawsuit, but it raised um, pretty interesting questions for folks who think about this kind of stuff. All right, we will pivot now to the Supreme Court, which is uh, nominally on uh, in a recess. Um, but it's still making news um, because the justices just this week um, uh, effectively revived a Trump-era immigration policy that forces asylum seekers to wait in Mexico while their asylum applications are being processed in the United States. It was an opinion that uh, really jolted a lot of people who uh, observe immigration law and just court watch uh, high court watchers generally. Um, especially in this like kind of traditionally sleepy time for the court. Uh, it's a, a very interesting opinion. There's lots to parse over. It's got a lot of uh, ramifications for the the way that we're, that immigration policy is taking shape here. So lots to talk about. The Supreme Court just can't quit 
weighing in on Trump era immigration policies. Yes. Um, I feel like we've talked about so many of these over the last several years, but let's remind everybody what this one is. Yeah. So what we're actually talking about here is some tension that arises from the Biden administration's pivoting away from a Trump era immigration policy. I mean, that's actually what we're talking about here. Um, which uh, as soon as the Biden administration shifted course, this has gone through the federal court system quite quickly. And what you need to know is that um, in June, the Biden administration rescinded what has become known as the uh, remain in Mexico policy, which, as I said, is um, a policy put in place by the Trump administration that just says um, anyone seeking asylum from Mexico um, uh, has to wait in Mexico while the asylum application is being processed rather than come into the United States while the application is being processed. And this is obviously a lightning rod um, for immigration policy uh, watchers who say, like, you know, when people are in this legal limbo, where are they? Do they come in the U.S. or do they stay where they're from? And again, this um, there was a Trump administration policy that said you had to stay in Mexico Biden reverses it and says you can come into the United States while those while those applications are being processed. So state AGs in Texas and Missouri sued, basically saying that the reversal of this policy violates basic administrative law tenets. They say it's arbitrary and capricious. It's just it's sort of too unwieldy. You're you're reversing policy without proper notice. Um, anyone who studies administrative law knows about this stuff. Um, so after this, Texas judge um, basically agreed and said that that the policy reversal um, was arbitrary and capricious. The uh, Biden administration moved to block that order from taking effect, and it moved quite quickly through the appellate circuit. Um, but it lost at the Fifth Circuit, and that uh, basically brings us up to the high court where the Biden administration was basically asking for an emergency stay. It was asking the high court to say, hey, let us keep our policy in place while we litigate this on the merits. So that obviously gets us to the Supreme Court, um, which, as we mentioned earlier, is not actually <laughs> in session right now. But what yeah. did they say this week? Yeah, and I and I want to stress here, and I I, I think I uh, just did, but just to, to sort of make it very clear, this is not a ruling on the merits of any policy or the rescinding of a policy. Like I say, this was um, an emergency stay that the that the Biden administration was um, requesting to basically just say, don't allow this lower court order that faults our policy to take effect. Um, but the justices um, let it stand, um, which means that they basically said, you have to reinstate this remain in Mexico policy. Um, they didn't offer much commentary here. Like I say, it's not a full-fledged on the merits opinion, but all they said, they, they sort of hewed to administrative law uh, boilerplate by saying, uh, quote, the applicants have failed to show a likelihood of success on the claim that the memorandum rescinding the migrant protection protocols was not arbitrary and capricious. Migrant protection protocols is the sort of technical term of the remain in Mexico uh, policy. Um, it was uh, an unsigned order. Um, it's just sort of uh, it was per curiam. It was uh, supported by the court's six conservative justices and the three sort of more liberal members, Breyer, Sotomayor and Kagan, said they that they would have gone the other way. 
um, the case will now um, be heard on the merits in lower courts and by all likelihood will probably return to the Supreme Court next year or, or, or down the line to sort of take a more head-on approach as to sort of how these asylum applicants should be treated. I mean, that's a, a lot of moving parts for something we may see back at the high court again. Um, but what does this mean practically? Yeah, so as I said, I mean, the, the, the basic upshot is that the Biden administration has to basically enforce this remain in Mexico policy, as it's known, while the case plays out, which is, it's now on record, it's a, it's a, it's a policy that it does not support, but its hands are now eff- effectively tied by the highest court in the land saying, you have to, you have to enforce this while the case plays out. Um, now, that's very normal. Uh, when the high court denies um, an emergency petition, that happens all the time. But one thing that a lot of high court watchers noted is that it's a little bit different in this regard. Um, um, one reading of what went on here is that this is basically the same as uh, last year when the high court upheld DACA, which is, uh, I think people know, is the program that allows migrant children to remain in the U.S., was put in place by the Obama administration, reversed by by the Trump administration, and then the high court said, it's arbitrary and capricious, you can't just do that kind of thing. Um, But the difference arises is that um, a lot of opponents um, of of the sort of more uh, hawkish type of immigration uh, policy said that you could see it in a way that the high court sort of dictating that the administration has to do the remain in Mexico policy as something of a little bit of an encroachment on the administration's right to carry out foreign policy. The difference being that, you know, DACA says you have to take in these immigrants on certain terms, whereas the remain in Mexico policy says you have to keep them out. And that requires some degree of negotiation with a foreign Country, meaning that the Biden administration has to talk with Mexico about where these people go, how they are housed, yeah, et, et cetera. And that even um, makes more sense with the DACA example because it's not even really taking them in. DACA was people who are already here and just not y- expelling yes, yeah. them. So it yeah. really is a very domestic issue in that regard. So that makes sense. Yes. And so there was a lot of alarm raised about um, – the Supreme Court, without much commentary, again, as I said, it is just an emergency order, so they didn't actually explain their thinking. You know, viewed a certain way, it can be seen as a court dictating foreign policy in a certain way. Um, and again, the Supreme Court decision um, is is quite brief. It doesn't say anything um, about how the administration has to carry out this policy. But um, in the meantime, the administration has to enforce this policy and basically how that happens will certainly inform the way um, that, that it's examined um, and the way that it will be argued uh, when it gets back to the high court on the merits, if that indeed uh, occurs. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting, That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com.
Have you ever heard of shadow trading? Some corporate insiders have been doing it to circumvent insider trading regulations. But a new lawsuit launched by the Securities and Exchange Commission could change all that. Joining us today to explain it is our senior securities reporter, Dean Seal. Happy to have you back on the show, Dean. Hey, guys. Yeah, great to be back. So right off the top, I actually didn't know about shadow trading before. So can you break it down? Tell us what that is. Sure. So the term shadow trading was actually coined by a team of academics who've been researching this phenomenon for a little bit. Uh, and it's a great one because, you know, it's it's both kind of sleek and sexy, but it's also really accurate. Um, shadow trading is sort of framed as insider trading where instead of trading on the shares of a company that will be directly impacted or influenced by some confidential information, the, in- the insider will trade on shares of another company that will be kind of indirectly influenced by that same information. So think like um, a company's competitor or um, maybe it's you know, somewhere on the same supply chain. Um, for instance, maybe if you work at like a large retailer and you get some information that you think will drive up the price of that company's shares, you know, to get around some of the obvious prohibitions on insider trading, you might then buy up shares of that retailer's like main supplier or maybe a manufacturer that's partnered with. Yeah. So, I mean, you can see how this kind of occurs in like the like uh, this is trading that maybe occurs in the negative space of leaked information or something like that. Um, but we're having you on because you wrote a really interesting story about um, the Securities and Exchange Commission uh, basically filing a new lawsuit targeting shadow trading. Um, can you just tell us like the legal action that's sort of giving rise to what we're talking about here? Sure. Uh, so like you said, the SEC has never really gone after shadow trading before. It's got great data analytics tools, but um, this can kind of clearly slip through some of those cracks. But according to research, it is pretty prevalent. Uh, so in mid-August, the SEC sort of took its first stab at shadow trading. Um, and it's with what sort of looks, at least in the details, like a pretty good case. Um, in this situation, it was the head of business development at a mid-sized biopharmaceutical company called Medivation. Um, and in this situation, this was a pretty niche company. It was mid-sized, it was oncology-focused, and pretty importantly, it has a, it had a, you know, products that were already on the U.S. market. Um, and so as head of business development, the, uh, the defendant in this case was trying to guide the company towards an acquisition because a lot of these types of companies in particular were getting scooped up by larger companies. Um, and so within minutes of finding out through an, an internal email that Pfizer was kind of in the last few steps of finalizing a deal to pick up this company, he um, went straight to his work computer and purchased uh, options to buy shares in one of the, the company's biggest rivals. Um, and he did so knowing that um, through kind of his work with investment bankers, the fact that he has experience as an investment banker himself, and his own tracking of you know, prices and acquisitions that by his company getting bought up, it would make the market smaller for you know, other large companies to acquire these mid-sized oncology-focused companies. Uh, and so the SEC is asserting in this case that it was a, you know, it was a use of material non-public information for gain. And that sort of fits within, um, you know, their own insider trading prohibitions, even if it's somewhat novel. That makes sense to me as a lay person about how it, that just feels unfair the same way that insider trading feels unfair. Is that also why the SEC is compelled to bring this case? Why are they targeting this sort of new idea? 
Sure. So like you said, I mean, it, it, it's kind of unfair on its face. And a central tenet of the SEC's mission is to maintain fair and orderly markets. And the share price of a public company kind of by definition is supposed to be based on all of the information that's available to the public market. So if someone is exploiting non-public information to gain some kind of advantage, then they're running contrary to that mission. Um, and in doing so here, I mean, obviously there are a lot of legal issues to it, but like you said, there's kind of this overarching feeling that he's gaining an advantage that wasn't available to anyone else participating in that same uh, equity market. It definitely makes sense if you consider like at like a broad level that insider trading laws are meant to sort of bar people from getting an unfair advantage in the market because they have information that other people do not, that something like this might be covered. Um, but like you say, I mean, this is, you know, what what most people believe is the first sort of head-on challenge to shadow trading. I know you talked to some people for the story you wrote. What are some of the challenges that the SEC might face as it if it pushes through with this litigation? Right. So, I mean, that's kind of what makes all of this exciting is that, um, you know, this is brand new and it's also it's diving into, uh, well, I guess I should say insider trading itself is kind of a squishy area of law. It's yeah. not really um, laid down in hard statute. And so it's sort of based on interpretation through the courts and its applications. And so for that same reason, there's a lot of defenses here, which is likely why we're seeing this wasn't a settled case. The defendant is going to try and battle it in court. Um, and a lot of lawyers I've talked to say that, you know, he does have some avenues here to try to, to, to fight this. I mean, one of the main ones being that, um, you know, obviously he doesn't have any sort of, um, at least obvious on its face, fiduciary duty to the company that he was trading shares on. He has a, mm -hmm. you know, he has a fiduciary duty to his own, but not the one that he's actually profiting off of. Um, now, the SEC is sort of trying to combat this by arguing that the company itself had created this duty uh, via policy that it has. And in that policy, it states that you can't use any material non-public information that you glean from this job to trade on our company's shares or the shares of any other company. And so the SEC is kind of basing off of that policy. Whether or not the courts are going to see it that way is kind of up for debate at this point. Um, but there's more to it than that. I mean, uh, it's pretty easy to kind of see where some of this knocks against the established um, you know, sort of practices of insider trading, you know, you could always challenge, was that acquisition information material to the company that was actually traded on? Um, or there's also, you know, a question of some of the factors that are in play, like the fact that he knew that this could impact the other company's shares. I mean, you know, the SEC alleges that he knew that because, by virtue of his work with investment bankers at his own right. company. But to what degree does his own sort of analysis come into play or his own experience watching these shares go up and down? Um, so there's you know, certainly a case to be made against this. And I have a feeling based on the fact that he is a pretty high level um, executive in the pharmaceutical industry that he's not going to go down without a fight. But I would imagine the SEC also has some pushback for some of those. And one of the things that stood out to me about this fact pattern is he did this within minutes of finding out about the, the mo momentum for the Pfizer acquisition. Right, definitely. I mean, that's uh, this is if this was going to stand as a test case, and that's clearly what the SEC is intending to do, you pretty much couldn't ask for a better one. I mean, he did it within minutes of getting an email from his, uh, I believe it was a CEO, saying that Pfizer was kind of in these final steps of getting this finalized. And he also did it on his work computer, uh, which I, I think I'm not sure how much bearing that has legally, but it certainly doesn't look good. Um, and at the same time, I mean, he 
did it using uh, what are known as short-term out-of-the-money options. Um, and that's kind of, without getting into the minutia of what that means, it's kind of the bread and butter of insider traders because it's it's got a huge upside and it's not particularly attractive unless you've got a really, really good uh, idea that this is what's going to make a company, that a company is going to be seeing a share price increase relatively soon. Um, and it's also one that's pretty easily picked up by, like I said, the SEC's uh, analytics and data testing for this type of stuff. You've clarified why the SEC is going to kind of try and hem in some of this stuff that happens at the margins of what it usually prosecutes for for insider trading. Um, can you give us a sense of the stakes, though, about what might be? And we have to sort of game out a bunch of hypotheticals. But if it if if the suit gains traction and they lose, I mean, what are the risks that they're running in terms of how they enforce rules like this? Sure. I mean, obviously, this is them kind of staking out a claim, uh, you know, staking out their territory on this type of trading. Yeah. Uh, like I said, because it's such a good test case, a loss here would effectively mean that this isn't going to be an avenue for them to continue to pursue shadow trading, um, which we have a pretty a lot of pretty clear indications. This suit being one of them that the enforcement division at the SEC under the current administration wants to be really, really aggressive. So if they can't sort of tackle this new, you know, burgeoning target, then they're going to have to find some new workarounds, um, which aren't necessarily unavailable. I think a lot of you know a lot of people I talked to said too that this might sort of um, you know close in on the what the SEC wants to do, and a failure here might just give them more ammo to go to Congress and ask for um, you know some sort of regulatory approach or some sort of rulemaking or lawmaking approach that can start to to address this issue. Um, but obviously, they want to tackle it head on now and don't have time to wait for Congress. So this will determine whether or not this is something they can do with their current enforcement powers. Dean, this is a really interesting one, and I can't wait to read all your reporting as this case moves forward. Thanks so much for explaining it to us today. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. We like to end our show with something offbeat. And we're dipping our toe back in the realm of television for this one. So excited to talk about it. Alex, I think you wanted to tell us about something new coming our way. You know, I got to say, we've been doing this show for more than four years now. And I like the um, the phenomenon of like quasi celebrity TV courtroom, like like daytime courtroom, like uh, dispute resolution shows is a little bit of a blind spot for us. I've always wanted to like take a deep dive into this like this is in the Look, wake we of tried the- we tried to get judge <laughs> judy to come on the show we did she has she has spurned us thus far it's Look, if any true of you, if you have any prosies <laughs> out there want to have a contact with with uh judge judy let her know we're here it yes. sounds like bill's joking but we did reach out to judge judy because did. that would be a fun interview Yes. Um, so there, these shows take lots of forms. And of course, every few years you get a celebrity, like, like a non-legal world celebrity who ventures into this. We got uh, Chrissy Teigen did this, uh, I think, like a uh, year and a half or two years ago with Chrissy's Court. And now what we're talking about this week is that uh, ABC has ordered uh, a ser- it has put in a series order for Steve Harvey. Uh, to be a judge on uh, primetime TV, uh, which is not nothing. This is usually relegated to the realm of daytime TV. And now, if this if this ABC order is to be believed, 
We will have Steve Harvey uh, of Family Feud fame uh, resolving disputes in your living room in prime time. A true night court, if you will. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. I I will say I am definitely going to at least check out one episode of this. But when you brought this up, Alex, (laughs) the first thing I did was think to myself, oh, didn't these shows get at least a teeny bit of legitimacy of having actual like judges, real judges who were just now TV judges. So I did do a little digging around and thinking about if that matters and like how that works. Um, And it won't be a big surprise to our legal listeners to hear this next (laughs) bit, but just a reminder that these are usually real disputes in real cases, but essentially what we're doing here is it's like a mock court. It's actually binding arbitration. It's arbitration. Exactly. And you don't have to be a lawyer to be an arbitrator. So that's how you can start seeing celebrities coming into these roles and doing it. They do this even when there are, act, like even Judge Judy is technically just, I mean, she was a family court judge in New York for several years, but like on the show, it is just binding arbitration. So this sort I, of like- I will yeah. say, Alex, I did look yeah. up how the people's court does it because that one's been on the air for so long. Yeah. Um, not only- is it? I mean, it's binding arbitration like we talked about. Yeah. But the actual disputes do get culled from real small claims court. So they have producers oh, nice. like looking through dockets of those and finding ones that seem like they'd be good for TV and inviting those people to take it from small claims court over to their binding arbitration television show. Will Steve Harvey be wearing a robe <laughs> or one of one his, can hope one of his traditional suits? Uh, from his suit collection, the man is a fashion his mustache icon. Mustache make him more authoritative. That's the bigger yeah, question. Yeah, I mean, I, this is this is probably as good. I mean, I don't know the answer, Bill. I I hope for the sake of like theatricality, they they put him up there in the robe. Um, but uh, Steve Harvey is like, I mean, he's like been a host of like like I said, he hosts a Family Feud, and he's been a host of like several sort of live TV events over the years, and he's just kind of like. He's kind of like a meme factory now. Yeah. Um, he pops up in various like sort of TikToks and like Instagrams and things where he just like has sort of incredulous reactions to wild things that happen on the set. So he's good for that. And so I think the courtroom atmosphere could be good for him. Uh, I just hope that when it comes time to decide who wins and loses the cases before him, it goes a little better than the time he hosted the Miss Universe uh, pageant. Uh, do, do, do you remember? Do, does anybody remember this? Oh, I totally remember this. All time, all time great TV moment. Okay, folks. Uh, there's. I have to apologize. The first runner-up is Columbia. <laughs> now, this is taped. That was a live event. So I so I assume if he bungles uh, who is the respondent and who is the whatever, sure. you know, the, the petitioner, he can get that ironed out in post or whatever. Alex, what, but, I'm, yeah. what I'm wondering about is whether or not now that he's, you know, within the, the ABC family, if perhaps this sets him up to take over the Bachelor franchise. I mean, it's it's in play. Nothing can be ruled out, Bill. And, now that Chris and, Harrison has exited. <laughs> I guys, like where your head's I at. I love that idea. Also, <laughs> I do want to point out, um, just as my sort of parting thought on this, 
I like the idea of Steve Harvey having increasing responsibility because he's originally from West Virginia, as am I. Is that true? It's true. And you know how wise we are. So I want my fellow West Virginians to have a lot of power here. I, I like it. Yeah, we need that. What is the what is the term? Oh, yeah the uh, the the mountain south yes, uh, 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 wisdom uh, here uh, beamed into our into our television Look, sets. He's going to have evening. lots of disputes, and I think some some sort of homegrown wisdom might really catch on. I think it's a great idea. He has a flair for the theatricality, and I'm looking forward to seeing how that plays out in a uh, fake legal forum. So uh, stay <laughs> tuned on that. We have a lot of people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader, our graphic designer, Chris Yates, our guest this week, Dean Seal, and our contributing reporter, Jennifer Dowdy. Music for the show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, please leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts. That helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about what we've talked about today, just go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you again next week.